Yeah, take your Bibles and turn over to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Give you a second to get there. Interesting thing about the Colossians passage that Harry just read is very similar to the one that we're in, as we'll soon see. Last Sunday, we looked at who we were before Christ, or we looked at the nature and position of an unbeliever. Um, We looked at who the Ephesians were prior to Christ, really, is what we looked at. Um, And that was in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This morning, we're going to look at who we are in Christ or as Christians, as believers. That's kind of the structure of the text. It's sort of who we were, who we are, how we became who we are, why we became who we are. That's really the first 10 verses of chapter 2. And so that's kind of the way that we've been uh, dealing with the text so far. Uh, I'd like to go ahead and read our main section, which will be verses 4 through 7. That's what we're going to look at. That's where we're going to get the who we are from. So I'll go ahead and read that and then pray one more time and we'll get started. You guys ready? Are you ready to take some notes? Right? Or some of you guys have amazing memories? Not me. That's why I have seven pages of notes every Sunday. And whenever I say I'm just going to go freestyle, Paul Rogers starts praying immediately. So it, it's never a good, yeah, right? Amen? Yeah, of course, you amen your own thing. Uh, but it's true, right? It's like, man, a pastor without notes, that can be very dangerous, especially this one. Uh, let me go ahead and read our text out loud. Follow along, okay? This is from the ESV. But God... Love that phrase. We're going to really look at that. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That, that, let me just say that that is, this is the good stuff, all right? Father, open our hearts and minds to the good stuff, to the truth. We've heard last week, most of us were here, we've heard or we have some idea of who we were before Christ, not good, not pretty. Today we get to focus on who we are in Christ, what you've done for us, why, how it worked, and, and, and who we are. And, and I'm just really, really excited about this text. It is an amazing text. And I say that about every text that I study because your word is amazing. Every word, every jot, every tittle, it's unbelievable. And, and so I'm so thankful for the Scripture, and I'm so thankful for the power of the Holy Spirit who takes the Scripture and opens our, He illuminates us, He opens our minds, eyes, hearts, ears to it, and not just that we might understand it, but that we might be impacted and changed by it, and that we might live differently. And so we pray all of that this morning. Have your way done here today, Father. And move in the Spirit. Holy Spirit, move in this place. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, the Son. Amen. All right, so let's begin with the very first couple of words in verse 4. We'll call it 4a, right? Look at the first two words, but God. Paul has been describing, he described in the previous verses, who the Ephesians were, right? Prior to Christ. It was like he was right in the middle of talking about you were this, you were that, you were this, and then we get to this fantastic phrase, this fantastic statement, but God. This really sort of represents or points to or encapsulates the whole Christian message, right? The whole gospel is, in a way, packed into those two words, but God, right? Because the gospel's the good news. It's about what God has done in and through Christ Jesus for lost sinners, right? That's the gospel. But God sort of encapsulates that. It represents the whole of the Christian message, right? It really does. Humanity 
is dead in sin, right? The world is evil. The devil is its prince in a sense. People are enraptured with their fleshly passions. People are by nature children of wrath. That's what we've learned. And here we get to, but God. This is the way that we ought to view the world. This is the way that we ought to view the current situation in crisis and all that. We look at all of the bad. We look at all of the terrible things that are happening and going on. And we should, and right, and, and some of us can become so filled with anxiety or despair or worry or any of these things. And what we ought to say when we reflect and look, we should say, but God. You know, but God, right? Humanity is desperately wicked and lost, but God. Humanity's on the broad road to destruction, there's no doubt about it, but God. But God means that God did something about the situation. That's what it reflects. That God provided, but God means that God provided a way out, a way of rescue, a way of redemption, namely Jesus Christ. This is what we should preach to our families, neighbors, friends, and coworkers, right? We could just sum it up with them. Yeah, I know it's terrible. I know it's a difficult situation. I know, you know you're struggling with addiction. I know these things are happening. I know you, you, don't, you can't see light at the end of the tunnel. You, you don't know what to do. And we should say, but God. But God. Now, but God is also the point of contrast in the text. Paul has been telling the Ephesians who they were before Christ. Right now, he's going to tell them who they are. But God is that point where he shifts off the negative to the positive. The passage really is divided like this. Verses 1 through 3, this is who you were. Verses 4 through 7, this is who you are. Now, I want you to pay close attention to the text as we move through it, because what you're going to see is that Paul uses exact opposites. Exact opposites. Example, in verse 1, back in verse 1, he told them that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, in the trespasses and sins in which they once walked. In verse 5, he told them that they have been made alive with Christ and saved by grace. So that's what we see in the first table of the text is Here's who you were, here's who you are. We see exact opposites, specifics. You were dead, now you're, what's the opposite of dead? Alive. That's what we're going to see. And he does it really three times. Gives three examples. Really, really cool text. But you got to pay attention. you got to get ready to take some notes and really focus. Don't be distracted. Now, before listing, right, before sort of showing who they are versus who they were, before doing the opposite game, before listing who they became in Christ, Paul wanted to do something that I think is so critical. Because whenever we talk about who we were or who we are now or any of the things of God, uh, we can become very confused and begin to have a wrong theology in that we start to put such a high emphasis on our role in these things, what we've actually done in it or what have you. And so what he wants to do before he starts talking about who they are, he wants to build, he wanted to build, he intended to build more foundation. Okay, so before getting to who you are, this is who you were, who you are, he wanted to build more foundation. This is exactly what we see in the text. We might say that he wanted to describe to them Maybe we'd put it like this, why God saved them. Maybe how they became Christians. Why God saved them, how God saved them, how they became Christians, these sorts of things. So he wants to, he wants to build some foundation to, to guard against the, our natural default mode, which is humanism. Because anytime we ever talk about the amazing grace of God, the work of God, in salvation, the first thing we do is we start to think about ourselves and our role in it, our position, maybe our responsibility, those sorts of things. Whenever we talk about this stuff, it's like, well, and, and you hear this all the time, right? Well, when I received Christ, well, when I did this, when I did that, and, and Paul 
Paul's not an I guy at all. The Scripture isn't. And so he wants to build a little more foundation to show why God did what he did for them. The nature of God's position, why he does what he does before he gets to this is who you are, why to safeguard against the humanism that we all struggle with, especially me. And we see him, he does this. He starts to lay this foundation in 4B, right? Right after but God, here's where he goes into it. 4B says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Stop right there. Why did God save the Ephesians? Why did God save this wretch, Phil Baker? Why did God save Gina Tate? Why does God save people? Right? If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, why did He save you? 4B. He did it because He is what? Rich in what? Mercy. And because He loves. There's your foundation. For many of us, if not all of us, this is a difficult truth or concept. I suppose it could be a concept to some of us, but it is a truth. It could be a difficult one to accept. The idea that we, you know, that God has this rich mercy and this love of us or for us. It's, it's a difficult thing to grasp, especially if you come out of a situation like me in a broken home where dad bailed. Dad's the father figure. That's the guy. That's kind of like the place of honor and respect in the family. And when your dad bails, that can screw a young man up pretty big time, can screw a young lady up pretty big time. You, you have authority issues. You have issues with love and acceptance, these sorts of things. I've been wrestling with my whole life since it happened. It can be very difficult to accept this truth that we that God has extended mercy, that He has mercy, or that He loves us, right? Would we all agree that that's a difficult thing at times? I mean, some of us just, you know, hey, no problem. I, I, I jump around like Pippi Longstocking in this. It's great. I got the, I don't know, that was weird, right? It's just, everything's just fantastic for some of us. I, I don't understand how you get there. But for the majority of us, it's like, okay, I'm loved. I keep hearing this, I'm loved, but it, it's tough. Well, sin, Satan, and the world, they contradict these truths. They contradict these truths. They, they tell us that, that it isn't true, that, that God is not merciful, that, that God is not loving, right? Sin says to us, how could God love you? Look at what you do. You're disgusting and shameful. That's what our sin says back to us. How could God be loving and be merciful toward you when you do what you do? You are a cockroach. Cockroaches are four levels above you. You're just a roach. Satan says to us, right? This is what he says, right? Sin's message to us is that, you, you know, you're, you're disgusting. There's no way. Satan's mess to it, message to us is this. If God really was merciful toward people, if he was really loving toward you, if he really loved you, then all this bad stuff would not be happening to you. That's Satan's message to us. Sin says, you're horrible, there's no way, you don't qualify. Satan says, trust me, if he loved you, you wouldn't have lost a child. You wouldn't have lost your marriage. You wouldn't have engaged in that and all this broke. You wouldn't, you just, if he loved you, it wouldn't be bad. And of course, the world comes in and says, come on, seriously? I'm the one that loves you. Follow me. I can tell you this. We, I, need to quit listening to sin, need to quit listening to Satan, need to quit listening to the world, and start listening to God's voice, which is right here in Scripture. Would we all agree that we pay way too much attention to the sin, we pay way too much attention to the devil, we pay way too much, more than anything else, more attention to the world, that those three voices are the ones that we listen to more than any other? on a typical basis. And might I suggest to you that we need to stop listening 
to them. We need to start listening to the voice of God, which is the very Scripture. This is His Word. It's His voice. It is He speaking to us. God has decreed to love us, and He signed that decree in blood. The blood of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. We need to, and I quoted this this week, or actually I came up with this this week, but we literally need to glance. We need to learn to glance at our sin and gaze upon God's grace. We need to reprogram in the power of the Holy Spirit our minds to do this because we do the exact opposite, right? We gaze upon our sin. We gaze upon Satan and what his message is to us. We gaze upon the message of this world. We, we stare at those things. We give them full attention all the time while we merely glance at the grace of God. We need to flip it, guys. We need to flip it. If we do not make this shift in focus, we will continue to be miserable. We will be defeated. We will disqualify ourselves from being involved in the things of the Lord. You know that? You, you, you can't go down there and, and serve and do this and that because, you know, you, you struggle with sin. And, and you know, and this is Satan again, right? The world's message, the devil's message. And, and, and only those that can serve, they're, they're the ones that have it together. If you believe that lie, and, you know, and that, that, it, that you serve, and the reason why you serve is because you have it together, I, I, would, I would just as gently as I can say, stop serving at RHC. Because you're a disaster, just like the rest of us. I, don't, I can't get my mind around God's economy of things. If I were God, I wouldn't use morons like me to do things. I'd probably just use some good angels. But somehow, in His economy of things, by His design, according to His will, He uses saved sinners. Saved sinners, which means they're, they're saved, but they continue to struggle and wrestle and war with sin. He doesn't use perfect people. I'm always reminded of what Jesus said. You know, I didn't come to save those who are well. And what does he mean by that? Those who believe they're well. I came to save those who are sick. Those who are spiritually bankrupt, impoverished. Matthew 5, 3. See, we've got to make a shift in our thinking. We've got to stop giving so much focus and attention to our sin, to Satan and the world, and stop gazing upon those things and start glancing at them and start gazing upon the grace of God. We need to make the flip. Because if we don't, we are going to be completely impotent. We are going to be miserable because all we look at is our sin. And, and we can even say, well, I don't really do that, but you're the type that focuses on everyone else's sin. You're still going to be miserable. That tends to be where my struggle is more so, is that I watch people and do what they're doing, I'm like, oh my gosh, no! And I have given some kind of right and power over me to the devil in that area where I'm so captivated by what other church leaders are doing and it just makes me miserable because all I focus on is their shortcomings. We got we to switch it, guys. You're not going to start serving or continue to serve if all you focus on is your sin. You know, one of the amazing things about the way God set this thing up and designed it is that there is so much sanctification and work and transformational work that happens in the context of service. This is one of the biggest tragedies. Here I am getting critical. But it's one of the biggest tragedies in the church today. I mean, there is a 10-20% rule in the church. 10 to 20% of believers do all the giving in service. Where's the other 80 at? Sitting there with a margarita? And what they don't understand is that they are completely missing out on the tremendous, sanctifying, transformational work that God does in the context of service. 
If you withhold your time, talent, and treasure, you're impacting your own spiritual development and growth. If you are a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ, serve. That is a context where He will work in your life and change things about you. You know, you can refocus in service because you're spending time doing certain things as opposed to doing other things. Sometimes we just need to realign our focus. Now, an interesting thing about sin is that it actually has a purpose in the life of a believer. And, you know, and some would say, are you nuts? It does. You think about this for a moment. When God saved us, He could have easily removed our sinful nature. Could have just took it away. And somehow we would walk in complete and absolute perfection amongst imperfected, unregenerate unbelievers. He could have taken away our sinful nature. Could He have not? I believe, I think, that He left it in place during the duration of our life. Why? So that we would learn to depend on Him. So, the fact that sin is still present in our lives and that we wrestle with it in these things, it, there, there is a divine purpose for it that God desires. Now, I'm not saying God wants us to go sin it up because the gospel grace doesn't give us license to sin. It makes us new people. We hate sin now. That's the right attitude. But what I'm saying, what I'm suggesting to you is that it's, it's, it's there for a purpose to remind us of our helplessness to drive us to God's grace. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul who had a thorn in his side. Nobody knows what that is. We don't know if it was a sin struggle or if he had some kind of a physical ailment. We don't know what it is, but you remember what happened with him when he prayed, I don't know what, three or four times for God to remove it, and God said, no, no, you're going to stay that way. My grace is sufficient. My power is made shown in weakness. So he doesn't remove our sinful nature. He doesn't remove those things during our life. Why? That those things might drive us to His grace and display His strength and power because His power and strength is shown greatest in this particular time. During this particular season, it is shown and expressed so awesomely in human weakness. So sin is there for a purpose. And we don't rejoice in that. The believer hates sin. He hates the fact that he keeps sinning. He hates the fact that he struggles with sin. He hates, he wants to be like, she wants to be like Jesus. And that's coming. So I would say to you, because sin has a bit of a purpose in our lives to drive us to grace, to remind us of our need of God, to make God's power known to the world through human weakness, that we have an adversary, right? We have three adversaries. We have sin, we have Satan, we have the world, right? That are constantly tempting us to focus on them, to stick to them, to forget about God's grace, to gaze upon them and not upon God's grace or just to glance at it. I would say this, do not, because we must understand sin, the devil, and the world. We must understand something about what Christ did, that he defeated those things for us. So I would say this to you, do not slip back into the mode of empowering them and giving them some sense of authority over your life because they don't have authority over your life. They don't. Christ defeated sin, really, ultimately in his body. He defeated Satan. We talked about that. Uh, Harry read about it in Colossians. The authorities have been disarmed. The world has been conquered and overcome. What did Jesus say? I have overcome the world. Our adversaries, sin, Satan, the world, have been overcome. They don't have any power over the believer. They don't have any authority over the believer. Why would we listen to them? Why would we give back to them the very things that have been taken from them through Christ? Right? The only power that believers are bound by now is the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? 
Uh, Notice with me as well. So do we all agree that we're going to gaze upon grace and glance at those other things, that we're not going to give them authority? In fact, it's impossible for us to give them authority because the authority has been removed. They don't have dominion over us. They don't have power over us. You're not a slave to sin. You're a slave to righteousness. Don't give back to sin power. It's been removed. Same thing applies to the devil. Same thing applies to the world. And when I say world, I mean what I meant last week. The philosophy of the world, the godlessness of the world, the mind, the heart, the attitude of the world, right? Now notice with me also how Paul wrote, what did he say? Loves us with great love. What is great love? Hmm. 5a, look at it with me. What is this great love? Well, he gives an example of it there in 5a. Look at it again. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, is what he says. God loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, in our sins. Imagine that. That's what the text says. You know, I spent 30-plus years of life living in sin, walking in trespasses and and walking in and living in. I wasn't living, I guess, but I was spiritually dead. 30-plus years of walking in sin and trespasses, being spiritually dead, and yet, according to this text, God loved me the whole time. Now, I'd say, and I think we all agree, that that's, that's, a, that's a great love. Now, I just will complain a little bit. I wish he would have revealed his love to me sooner. Who, who, who would agree? Like, you know, did you have to wait till I was 32? Would have been nice to know at two. But then again, right? But then again, he had a plan, and he has a plan, and he has a timeline. He knows what's best. He's working all things in accordance with his will, the purpose of his will, and that is what is best for you and I. So rather than saying, well, gosh, I I certainly wish I could have avoided maybe some of these other things or, or whatever. I wish I could have got saved early, which I think all believers feel like. We should be thankful that he saved us at all. I shouldn't be tweaked that it took so long. I should be absolutely thrilled that he saved a wretch like me. And you know what? For some people, it's, 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 it, the dynamic's even more different. They get saved when they're on their deathbed. I'm really glad he didn't do that to me because I'd be like, I wasted my life! <laughs> you know? But it happens, and God is merciful, right? And he has this great love. And so what what do we see here? What we see here is something that's, again, a difficult, challenging truth. That God, His love for us, this great love for us, it predates our conversion. Now, that's not understood in the church today. They just put it out there, and when you receive it, now you're His kid and He loves you and all that. No, 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 no. That's not what the text says. His love predates our conversion He loved us while we were dead in our trespasses, man. But it goes beyond that, friends. Back in chapter 1, we were told that God loved us before we were ever born and before the foundation of the world. I like Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. He chose us in, this is what we studied a while ago, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You see, His great love for us predates our conversion. It goes way back off into eternity. How does that work? Don't ask me. I'm reminded of Romans 5.8 too. It says, but God shows His love for us In that while we were still sinners, Christ did what? Died for us. God sent Jesus to die on a cross for us in our place while knowing that we would be born as sinners and dead in our trespasses. He did it anyways. Let me tell you, friends, that's great love. 
If I had the ability, and you will all be praising God that I don't and never will, but if I had the ability to look into the future to see how people hated me, how they cursed me, how they profaned my holy name, how they committed atrocities against other image bearers, against others, how they worshipped idols made by human hands and nature, right? They worshipped these nature items, the sun, the moon. I wouldn't do anything for them. I would let them rot in their sin, and I would give them an express ticket right to the dungeons of hell. Aren't you glad that Pastor Phil is not God? (laughs) You know, you guys are out there, he's just not very loving and gracious. You wouldn't do the same thing if you could look out. If I could see how poorly my wife, and she treats me very well, but if I could see six months down the road that she was going to do something bad to me, I'd probably start acting differently to her now. It's coming. Dang it. I'd count down the days, right? I'd set up a defense network, try to do everything to get around that day. Maybe I'd just despise her up to that point. And then beyond that point, I mean, think about it. Let's just be real here. You you see, but God knew these things about us, and yet He sent Christ to die on a cross for us regardless, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Do you realize that when you got saved, that right at that moment, and maybe you can't put your finger on it exactly, when that happened, you were literally dead spiritually and that you were made alive. Why? Why does God do this for people like you and I? And according to Revelation 7-9, I believe, it's just a massive mixed multitude of people. Why does He do it? Because He loves us with a great love. Because He is rich in mercy. His love, think of it this way, is actually greater than our sin and rebellion. It's deeper, it's broader, it's wider, it's more powerful. There's an interesting thing is that we can actually demonstrate this great love to others in a number of ways. We can love the unlovable, the marginalized, the rejected, outcasts, because that's essentially what the Father has done for us. We can patiently endure persecution rather than defend ourselves and retaliate, which is our default mode. We see that in Christ and His love. Probably one of the biggest ways and maybe one of the more common ways, one of the ways that we'd be more challenged than any other ways would be that we can simply forgive those who sin against us. (laughs) So, The foundation for our sin and identity as Christians is God's mercy and love. Foundational. We have been saved because God is merciful and loving, and we have been made Christians because God is merciful and loving. What? I did not save myself through prayer or even through the exercising of faith. God, who is rich in mercy and loving, saved me. I did not make myself a Christian through a prayer or through faith. God, who is merciful and loving, made me a Christian. That is what Paul is saying here in this text. See, it's foundational to where he's going because he doesn't want them to get confused and inject themselves into something that they didn't have a part in. I am convinced, and I'm becoming more and more convinced each day as I study Scripture, that we believers will not experience, and believe it or not, there actually is, it does exist, there is a fuller joy that comes with salvation. I believe that we will not, as believers, experience that fuller joy, that fuller sense of security and purpose in these things until we first understand that salvation is entirely of God. I'm convinced. We must understand, and here's where the fuller joy begins to come, that our only role in the whole thing, our only part in the equation was that that we 
played the role of the spiritually dead sinner. That's it. That's all you did. We've got to learn to let go of, well, I did this and I did that, and when I received Christ, when I did this, you know, there's no joy in I. There's only despair and heartache in I or confusion in I or a sense of security. Why? Because we are sinners. I say get this truth down. It's all God. Believe it and begin to experience the fuller joy of salvation in knowing and that sense of security in knowing that it really is all oh, God. Release that to Him. Now let's look at the next section. This is where Paul began to contrast who the Ephesians were with who they had become. Look at verse 5b with me. It says, Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, this statement is the exact opposite of what Paul wrote in verses 1 and 2a. Who were we according to those verses? We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Who are we according to verse 5b? We are alive together with Christ. There's the exact opposite. What does it mean to be alive together with Christ? Remember what we talked about last week? Being separated from God means what? Spiritual death. Being joined to God means what? Spiritual life. Christ is God. If we have been joined together with Christ, put in Christ, we have been made alive. Taking this further, in chapter 1, Paul said repeatedly that we are in Christ, not just together with Him in a sense, but that we are actually in Him. We are more than joined to Christ or together with Christ. We are in Christ. And because of this, friends, we are alive. We are spiritually alive because we have been placed in Christ. Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. We have been put him in him, in the author, in the perfecter. We have been given life in Christ. In Christ, that's the only place of spiritual life. You won't find it anywhere else. Notice also how it says, made us. You see it there? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Made us. Say that. Made us. Who made us alive together with Christ? Phil Baker? No. God, who is rich in mercy and who loves us with a great love, He's the one that made us alive together with Christ. This is the miracle of salvation. That God alone supernaturally makes dead sinners alive in Christ. So much of today's preaching is devoid of the supernatural work of God in salvation. The whole emphasis today, in most places, most churches, with most sermons, is put on the individual rather than on God's work. Preachers say, Christ died on a cross and it's up to you to do something about it. If you believe in Jesus, a miracle will take place and you will be saved and transformed. You'll become a new creation if you do that. Is that what the Bible teaches us here in Ephesians 2? No. Funny thing is about our little text here, this is what's so rich and awesome about it, is that there's no mention anywhere in it of human effort or activity. Find it and let me know. It's not there. Friends, the Ephesians were recipients, not orchestrators. They did not come to Christ to experience the miracle of new birth. They came to Christ because they experienced the miracle of new birth. They had been made alive. They had been made. Say it again. Been made alive together with Christ first, and then they came to Him by faith. To make sure that, that the Ephesians didn't get the order wrong, 
Paul inserted a, another, and he does this every time he's talking about safe, salvation, house, you know, predestination, election, salvation, whatever. Whenever it comes to the amazing work of God in salvation, he usually puts in a little safeguard statement, and he did it right on the tail end of this 5B, right? By grace you have been saved. Bam, there it is. Grace is the gift of God as expressed in his actions of extending mercy, loving kindness, and salvation to people. Someone once called grace one-way love, and really that is exactly what it is. It is God pouring out his one-way love on us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, those things in which we once walked. Grace came from above. It came from the throne of God. We didn't call for it. We didn't earn it. It came to us while we were dead. That's what the text says. And what did it do? It came to us when we were dead in our sin and the transgressions and things in which we once walked. It came to us when we were corpses, spiritual corpses, and yet it what? Made us alive together with Christ. That's the supernatural work of the gospel. That's what truly makes it good news, friends. So who were we? We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Who are we? If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, who are you? Who are we? We are alive together with Christ. How? Grace. God is rich in mercy, and He loves us with a great love and grace. That's how it happened. That's the foundation. Now look at verse 6 with me. Not just that we've been saved by grace or been made alive together with Christ. He, 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 there's more. Six, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus is what Paul writes. This statement is the exact opposite of what Paul wrote in 2b. Verse 2b. Who were we according to verse 2b? We were followers of the course of this world, right? And followers of the prince of the power of the air, the devil. Who are we, all right, in Christ according to verse 6? We are raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. See the opposite there? In the Old Testament, there are, or yeah, there are, you will see, you will notice that there are different types of salvation. Being rescued from an enemy was a type of salvation. Think of the Israelites in Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt and delivered them to the promised land. Paul is making a similar point here. We have been delivered from our enemies, right? Sin, the devil, the world. Now, I, I want you to understand something here, guys, and this verse is misinterpreted all the time. It is not a prophecy, this idea of, of being raised up and seated with Christ. It is not a prophecy. It is not a future event. It is now. You must understand this. Notice his phrasing, right? Raised and seated. What does that tell us? Past tense. Already happened. It's not that he's going to raise us in the future or that he's going to seat us. It is past tense. These things took place. They've happened. You've got to understand this. It's critical. Past tense. They already happened. We have been raised up and seated with Christ. We are with him now. But aren't we here in this room? You're going off into the weird twilight zone stuff now, Phil. Are we in this room? Yes. You see, the idea here is that if we, now think about this, if we are in Christ, Ephesians 1, 1, 1, 7, 1, 11, 1, 13, a whole bunch of other places, right? Then we have to be where he is in a sense, don't we? But he's everywhere. No. If we have been joined to Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, then we have to be where he is. If we have been united with Christ, as it says in Philippians 2, 1, then we have to be where he is, right? In a way, we have to be. If we have been put in Christ, then we have to be where he is. Where is he now? 
According to verse 6, he is seated in the heavenly places. And what? We are with him. What is the heavenly places? Where is this? Well, in the Bible, there are three types of heaven. You have first, the first heaven, we'll call it, which is the sky or atmosphere. You have the second heaven, which is space. You have the third heaven, which Paul, the Apostle Paul, spoke about. You have the third heaven, which is the invisible realm where God resides, where His throne is. And the Scripture teaches us that Christ is in that third heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Which heavenly places was Paul talking about? Was he talking about the sky? Was he talking about space? Or was he talking about the heaven that we all long for, that place of God's presence? He was speaking of the third heaven. A little later on, he talks about how he knew someone who went there. And I think he was referring to himself. We are, listen guys, this is nuts. We are seated with Christ in the third heaven right now. But we are here. Yes, but we are also there with Him. Our presence with Christ as of now, our presence, if we're in heaven with Him, our presence with Him as of right now is spiritual. Right? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out because we are in this room physically right now and I'm physically speaking. It is a spiritual thing that we're talking about. We are with him in spirit. At his resurrection, Christ was raised into his glorified body and 40 days later he ascended into the presence of the Father in heaven. At our resurrection, we will be raised into glorified bodies and then enter into the presence of Christ physically. So we are with him in spirit in a way now, but in the future when our resurrection happens, we will be made more like him in resurrected bodies and joined with him physically. But right now we are with him in a way. We have been raised up and seated with him in the heavenlies. Paul was talking about this happened. It ain't coming. It's happened. I love that idea that we have been raised up and partially joined with Christ in a spiritual way. Our full spirit will enter His presence when we actually pass away. There's like three stages. It's like part of us is with Him now because we're in Him. The rest of our spirit goes to be with Him when we breathe our last breath on earth. And then we will be joined with Him and to Him in a physical sense at the resurrection. Pretty amazing. And I would say, yeah, challenging to understand. Now, since we are currently with Christ in a spiritual sense, we should do what? Set our minds on things above, not things below. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Peter calls us aliens and strangers in the world. We can now see why, right? We don't belong to this world Part of us is in heaven, in the heavenlies, in the third heaven with Christ, safe and secure there with Him, awaiting the time where our spirit will be fully joined with Him, and then all glory be to God, our glorified bodies, our resurrection bodies, we will be physically joined with Him. It's going to be awesome. This is why we focus on the things of heaven. We set our gaze upon grace and upon the glory of heaven because that's our true home, and part of us is now vacant from this tent and there with him. Who were we? We were followers of the course of this world and followers of the devil. Who are we? We are raised up, that resurrection power of God. We have been raised up with Christ and we are seated with him in the heavenly places. I like to look at it like this. We used to belong to and walk with the world and the devil and now we don't. We are with Christ. Exact opposite. Look at 7. He says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable, I love that, immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This statement is the exact opposite of what Paul wrote in verse 3. 
Who were we according to verse 3? We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we were before Christ. That's bad. Who are we according to verse 7? We are the recipients of the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We, we, we literally went from children of wrath like the rest of the world to His beloved children whom He blesses with the immeasurable riches of His grace. Whom He blesses, what? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? That was chapter 1, verse 3. What a difference. Now let's break down some of the phrasing here a little bit. Coming ages. You see that there? Coming ages. What, what did Paul mean? What are the coming ages? Let me give you the simplest definition of what it means. It, is he referring to like the tribulation period? I don't know if that's an age, that's a period, but maybe the millennial kingdom or what? You know, what is, he, what is coming ages? You want to know the simplest answer to that? Eternity. Every age that's to come, the millennial age, the eternal age. He's talking about forever here, friends. The coming ages is eternity. It's, 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 it's from the moment we were saved on. It's, 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 it's everlasting life, if you will. It's on, off into the ages where there is no time and space. It means eternity. And I love this. God's plan and promise to Christians, is to bless us with the immeasurable riches of His grace forever. And, and the immediate default mode of our mind is, I can't wait for that day. That day's now! It's now! The, the, the blessings come to us now. They come in, in, in various forms and types we, we are recipients now in a way, and yeah, there's, there's more to come, and there's a, a greater depth to it. There's a broadness to come to it. There's future blessings, but, but we are recipients now, friends. It's not just a future thing. It is now off into eternity. We would all agree because we all can evaluate our life and faith and see how we have been blessed spiritually and physically and everything else. In kindness. Look at that one. In kindness. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul listed forgiveness of our trespasses as one of the riches of God's grace. Here he tells us that kindness is one of the riches of God's grace as well. Kindness is the state of being that includes the attributes of loving affection, sympathy, friendliness, patience, pleasantness, gentleness, and goodness. God is completely kind to us. He is. And, and some of us all the time and some of us part of the time have a really hard time accepting this truth that God, we, still, we think He's mad at us. We think He's angry. We think He's hostile against us. And I'm not talking about an unbeliever. I'm talking about the believer. He is hostile against the unbeliever. His wrath is against them. They're, they belong to the world. Like it says, they're, they're, they're dead in their sin. To the believer, he is, he is not rude. He is not harsh. He is not impatient. He is not angry. He is kind toward us because it's one of the riches of His grace. Immeasurable rich, riches. He will continue to pour out His kindness on us as we move through life. I mean, I would think that during life is when we need His kindness the most. Because in heaven, it's glory and everything just is perfect there. He pours out, listen friends, He pours out His kindness on us as we move through life, as we struggle, as we fail. Our God is like, He shows us kindness. He doesn't say, man, that stupid idiot Phil, 
I can't believe he, he's like that, he's like that proverb I had, Solomon, right? The dog that keeps returning to his vomit. Look at that moron. That's how we treat each other. That's how we think of each other. That's how I think of myself. What an idiot. Those words never touch the father's lips. He does not feel that way about us or think about us that way. His disposition is that of benevolence, love, grace, mercy, in particular here in focus, kindness, which is affection, sympathy, friendliness, patience, pleasantness, gentleness, and goodness. It's all the good stuff. It is His kindness that leads us to repentance. It is not His brutality. It is not His sword. It is not sharp words. It is His kindness. God will extend this facet, this component, this piece of His immeasurable grace to us forever. It's not to come. It's now and forever. These are the things that change us as people. These truths. The reality of these things. This is how we are changed. When we realize what God has done and how He feels about us. What did I say earlier? We should glance at our sin. I say we don't even look at the devil, and I say we don't pay attention to the world. And we should gaze upon the grace of God because it's all, it, 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 the kindness and all of these things are just manifestations of this wonderful mercy, love, and grace that He has for us. This is His, listen, this is His heart for you. You will never change by trying to be better or to do better. You will only change when this love, this great love and this kindness and this mercy takes deep root in your soul, in your heart. That's when you will change. I'm learning this. I don't, I don't have this down. My wife would probably tell you I'm my worst critic. And what if God says, you just go ahead and keep torturing yourself by being so hard on yourself. It's not my attitude for you. It's not my heart. Why would I hold myself in a prison that I create? The truth has set us free. Notice with me the last two words. Christ Jesus. In our short text, <laughs> I love the Apostle Paul. I really love the Holy Spirit, obviously. He's the author. But in our short little text... Christ has been mentioned three times. <laughs> Verses 5, 6, and 7, right? Christ Jesus, Christ, Christ, Christ. Why? Because Christ is the one that makes all of these things happen and possible. You don't have ability you don't have strength. You can't save yourself. You, you, you can't make yourself a Christian. It's all Christ. He is the one that makes these things that we've talked about possible to the wayward 
person who's dead in their trespasses and sins. He is the one who dispenses these things to us. They're all in Him. Chapter 1, big emphasis. All the spiritual blessings were in Him. Without the person and work of Christ, we have no life. We have no deliverance from the devil, from the world. We have no immeasurable riches of God's grace. We have no spiritual blessings. All of the things that are listed in chapter 1, 3 to 14 are gone. We have no kindness. We have no hope. It's all Christ. You realize that today? You see, part of the purpose of Paul's writing here and the Holy Spirit-inspired writing is to completely strip us, to lay us bare, to remove any inclination of ability, of power, and to assign it all to the one whom possesses these things, and that's Christ. I don't think that the deeper, broader joy of salvation comes till we begin to understand that it's it's all God. It's all Christ. It's all in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me summarize as we wrap up. Why did God save us? Why did He make us Christians? He did it because He is rich in mercy and because He loves us with a great love. He didn't love you the moment you gave your heart to Christ or the moment that you realized Christ was there. and He didn't begin to love you at that point. He loved you way before that. And He had by appointment a time where the Spirit would come and give you a new heart and make these things known to you. Why did He save us? Why did He make us Christians? Because He's rich in mercy and because He loves us with a great Love, And I say that great love is shown in the fact that Christ died for us when we were sinners, knowing that we would be, and that He made us alive even though we were dead in our transgressions, hopeless, helpless. That's great love, friends. Who were we before Christ? We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Who are we now? We are alive together with Christ. We are saved by grace. Translation, it's all God. Who were we before Christ? We were (laughs) followers of this world and followers of the prince of the power of the air, the devil. Who are we now? We are raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. Amen. We are with Him now. Even though we are here, we are with Him now and we will be joined with Him more fully and completely in the future. But we are with Him now. We are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is there in the third heaven, in the place. And not only that, it's not like we're walking around in this place. Wow, it's so spacious. We're seated with Christ, it says. And we know He's at the right hand of the Father. We are there with Him. We ought to live in light of that. Who were we before Christ? We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Who are we now? We are the recipients, hallelujah, of the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness. That's one example, in kindness. In Christ Jesus. That's who you are. My, uh, just lastly, my very favorite phrase in this text is but God I'm so glad for that but God I'm so glad that God intervened and rescued me saved me pulled me out of the mode of life that I was in in the world, following the devil. I'm so glad he did that. I'm so glad and so elated at but 
God, I'm, I'm so glad He saved me, aren't you? I'm so glad He made me a believer that He came. He sent the Holy Spirit. It was His role to do this, to come in power and to give me a new heart and to give me these wonderful gifts of repentance and faith. They're gifts He gave. They're not gifts that I reject either. They're gifts that I respond to, that I receive and respond to with great joy. I have a new nature. They make sense to me now. Aren't you glad He did that for you? I'm so thankful for His saving grace. I'm so thankful for His sanctifying grace. I'm so thankful for my spiritual blessings. The immeasurable riches of His grace that I am a recipient of. The forgiveness of my sin, chapter 1. The kindness of God forever, now, chapter 2. What says you? 